Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church Podcast. This is the third in our remix series, and it is called Stop, But Don't Stop There. We hope you enjoy. That, uh, that we have opportunity to do, so uh, we like to give that transition as we switch into the message. So, I have to admit something that I, ha- I may, may or may not have done in the past, and that is call out for work when I wasn't sick. I have someone in this room that works for me, and um, so that is going to be struck from the record henceforth going forward. Um, but uh, uh, in, my, in my job, I may or may not have done that. So in that space, um, uh, you, ever, you ever been in that place where you've, uh, you've called out from work and you kind of forget, uh, you're not really feeling that sick, so you may go to the beach or something like that? And, uh, and what happens when you're at the beach? You get suntanned. And so even though you had the flu... Uh, you come back to work all suntanned, and your, your hair's a little bit blonder, your hair's a little bit more bleached, you know what I'm saying? Honestly, I haven't done that a lot in a long, long time. Um, so, uh, so that happens, right? Because you, can, you can't go to the beach without people being able to tell you've been to the beach. You go to the beach, you get suntanned, your hair gets a little bit bleached, especially if you've got like blonde hair, or if you have no hair, you're, you get suntanned up top. And uh, people can tell you've been to the beach. Well, the same thing is true as you encounter the presence of God. When you encounter the presence of God... Uh, you will experience life change, transformation. People will be able to tell, the more time you spend with God through grace and through the gospel, people will be able to tell that you've been with God. We're in the middle of a series, uh, we're three weeks into it, we got started a couple weeks ago, called Remix. And it's the idea that we're talking about when we talk about going to the beach and how that impacts us. When we experience the gospel, the Bible teaches us that our lives get transformed, they get remixed. Uh, We'll kick this off a few weeks ago, uh, by telling us how that the gospel transforms us from the inside out. It transforms who we are at the deepest level. gives us a new identity. gives us a new, uh, a new idea of who we are. And then we discovered last week, Will taught us how that affects our, our communication and fellowship with God. That as we begin to understand who we are and understand how God loves us, we will transition our prayer life and to reflect the, the grace and mercy that God's giving us so that we live out in authentic, authenticity in our prayer life. That's how the gospel remixes us. Today I want to take us on a little bit of a, a different step or a deeper step into this concept of how the gospel mixes our life. Uh, look in the Bible at 1 Peter with me for a second. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter three and chapter, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, but go ahead and get to chapter 2 first. So uh, I just realized as we uh, make this transition, our first public launch as a church, our pr- first public service as a church was a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, there, our third week. Um, it's probably important for me to introduce myself since some of you probably haven't met me yet. My name's Lance. I'm one of the, I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, I've been a part of this journey at Restoration Church for a while. I'm really excited to be able to teach you God's Word this morning. So the gospel remixes our lives. It changes who we are. It changes how we pray. It also changes how we engage in relationships. You see, Jesus is more interested, interested in more than just fixing our lives um, after we die, right? Jesus is, is interested in fixing our lives here on earth, transforming, bringing, bringing the gospel to apply on our lives every day. He wants to impact our marriages. He wants to impact our relationship with our children. He wants to impact our relationship in our co-working spaces. He wants to inter, uh, impact our relationship with our roommate, with our classmates. God wants to transform us in the here and now through the gospel. And we're going to see in 1 Peter what that looks like in our relationships. If there was ever a time in the world where we could admit, as we look out, probably both in our homes and in the city and in our state and in our nation, 
that the gospel needs to be applied to relationships and the brokenness and destruction we see amongst humans as we treat each other with uh, anything but kindness and grace and peace. The time to reflect on this is now. The time to understand and, and, and dig deeply into what the gospel says to how we treat each other is today. Probably never been a more relevant message to the culture that we're living in. It's also relevant to you. Even if you say, well, I've got my, my relationships are fine. A lot of us walk in here and they're not, right? Our marriages aren't where we want them to be. Our relationship with our children not, may, be, may, may not be great. We may have a friend that we're really in a brokenness with. Uh, but even if you walk in here thinking, hey, my, my relationships are great, what I want to challenge you to do as we read through First Peter together and study it is to reflect on how Jesus may want to expand your vision for what a great relationship is. Now, as we get started in First Peter, I want to give you a little bit of background. First uh, Peter uh, uh, is written by Peter. Yeah, see how we do that? This is really deep. Um, so Peter's written by Peter, uh, one of the more well-known apostles. Uh, most of us who, even if you don't go to church often, probably heard of St. Peter. And uh, Peter wrote this, it says from Babylon, which is probably Rome, and it's during a time of persecution, and it's to help Christians know how to go through persecution or any suffering in general. That's the whole big idea of the book of 1 Peter. And in so doing, it helps us understand, kind of like we've done over the last couple of weeks, what, our, what the gospel means, what it means that Christ died in our place for our sins on the cross, and how does that change our identity as followers of Jesus, change who we are. And then in verse, chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to give us a sentence, a command, an imperative that's going to direct the next couple of chapters. So it's important for us to start there. Chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents to abstain from, freshly, from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you, as those who do evil, they may, by observe, observing your good works, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what's Peter saying? As he kicks off this area of the scripture, this, these few paragraphs, chapter 2, 3, and most of chapter 4, he says, I urge you to consider how you live in the world, in the community, and do so in such a way that would bring honor and glory to God. Actually, this is very similar to what Paul says in Corinthians, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Some of you are familiar with that verse. Paul states that, and his entire book is about it. Peter is going to give us very clear application, very clear things to do to help us understand how we live a life that brings God glory. For the next several verses, he's going to go through several institutions of relationships. Relationships between us and our government, us and the authorities. Relationships between employer and employee. Relationships between even a slave and a master and a master and a slave. Wife to husband, husband to wife. Peter's going to go through several different relational contexts to teach us what it looks like to live in such a way that people watching us and experiencing us would see our good work, see our lifestyle that is pleasing and godly and holy and moral, righteous and kind and filled with grace. And as a result of that, they would glorify God. Peter tells us how to do what Paul challenged us to think through in Corinthians. As we get to the main part of this text. What happens is, is Peter in chapter 2 and then mostly through chapter 3 goes to the context of his relationships. But then in verse number 8, uh, we build to a crescendo. Uh, for those of you who like to like, dig into how the text was written, this is a spot in the Bible where, where the spotlight of the text is placed. Uh, if this were music, just before this would have been a little bit quiet. The music would have slowed down. 
And then this would have been like one of those powerful bridges. This would have been like a rock anthem moment uh, for Peter. The music would have gotten louder. The chords would have gotten, gotten faster and harder. And Peter, summarizing everything that he just said and giving a clear emphasis, gets us to verse 8. So even before we read it, I want you to know what he's about to say and what he's going to tell us. So as we look at it, as we look at the, the text we're going to read, know this. He is telling us how to live in all the relationships he just walked through. So he went through several relationships. Now in verse 8, he's going to tell us how to live it out, uh, how to describe the right kind of, of, of life as we go through those relationships. He's going to give us five adjectives. Now I'm going to read the verse. We're going to go through it together. I'm going to point out the definition for a couple of the, the adjectives. And then in the second half of the verse, he gets to the key point, the key idea, really, for this entire area. So it's something for us to pay, pay attention to, right? It's something for us to really focus in on. If this is how we glorify God in the city and in our community and in our state, in our relationships, whether as singles or married and families, and wherever we find ourselves, it's important for us to dig in and figure out what's going on here. Verse number 8. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded, or it might be better to translate that word harmonious, like the New English translation translates it. Uh, basically, it means uh, it's emphasizing the fact that we should be in harmony with, with both non-believers and believers, and it's focusing on the internal aspect of our harmony, not the external aspect. It's a word that helps point us to the internal thinking that drives harmonious behavior. In other words, it's saying don't fake it. Don't just act like you're harmonious with people that you disagree with, that you might be different than. Seek to be truly in peace and in harmony with them. Be sympathetic. You should also love believers or literally have brotherly love. It's the word Philadelphia. And be compassionate and humble. And we'll pause there. We'll come back to verse 9 in a minute. Two words I want to point out the meaning of them to real quick. One is the word sympathetic. And the reason I want to pause on it is because most of us probably have heard the word sympathetic many, many times in our life. It actually comes from the Greek word sympathos. So as you probably can hear, when you say the word sympathetic, you're saying the same, same as the Greek word sympathos. So guess what? You know Greek. So next time you're filling out an application, you can put your bilingual... Uh, I know English and Greek. I know the word sympathetic. So it's the word sympathos, and it means to with, with or together with emotions, pathos, passions. Uh, the idea behind the word is this. Not, don't only engage someone at the intellectual or rational level. Engage others at the emotional level. Did you know that studies have been done on organizations that are really great, the best organizations in our nation? And they have determined that there is one key to great leaders, great CEOs, in, in, in the world, and that is their level of emotional intelligence, how well they're able to engage others at the emotional level. Not only does that apply to CEOs and leaders, that we should be able to engage others, be challenged to engage others at the emotional level, it also is a challenge for us as believers in how we engage each other in our city and our community. We should engage each other, not just at the intellectual level, but the emotional level. Just as a pause, a quick application for you, learn to ask people what they feel about something. A surface-level question might be, how's the weather? Slightly deeper might be, what do you think about X? What do you think about the football team? What do you think about the, the political scenario we're in? What do you think about it? A deeper, more intimate question, and where Peter is challenging us to engage is, how do you feel about it? Ask people how they feel about things they're going through. How do you feel about the scenario you're going through in life? How do you feel about... The, the struggles you're going through financially. Thank you for sharing that with me. How are you feeling about that right now? As you look at the world around you and you see people going through chaos, maybe you see 
the, the events in Charlotte, and you watch that go down. Maybe you have someone around you, and your temptation is to get into arguments with them, and dialogue, and debate about whether something's real or not real, or valid or not valid. Instead of asking about what they think, ask them how they feel, and how do you respond? You don't. Shut up and listen. Engage people at the emotional level. Ask people how they feel. Show that you care. It's not always about thinking correctly. It starts most often, as Peter challenges us to do, is learn to think to help people engage people at the emotional level. The other word is the word compassionate. So what Peter does in this verse is he gives us two words. He says brotherly love, that's Philadelphia. And then he uses a word that means motherly love. The word that's compassionate is best translated as tenderhearted or motherly love. So it paints for us a picture in the kind of love we should grow in. Peter is laying one thought on another, challenging us to go deeper and deeper and deeper in how we engage other people. First, it's just live in harmony, both in surface and and authentically in our hearts. Then he challenges us to go into the emotional level and then go into the brotherly love level, which simply means treat people like they're a part of your group, not like they're outside of your group, no matter who they are. No matter what they look like, no matter what they wear, no matter what goes on in their life, always treat people like they're in your group. Treat people like they have the same last name as you do, no matter what. And then he challenges us not just to think of others and be affectionate with others with a brotherly love, but with a motherly love. Now, here's what comes to mind when he says that to me, and I think what he's getting at. When you were a kid, did you ever ride your bike downhill too fast, or your wagon, or your big wheel, or your green machine? Anybody know what a green machine is? All right, I got a few folks, all right. Not the oldest person in the room, that's good. Um, so going too fast, or your wagon if you're really old, uh, sorry. Uh, so you're going, you're going downhill, you, you flip it over a few times, and you scrape up your knee, and it's just like got gravel in it and dirt, and it's all bloody. Anybody ever been there? And then you go home, you start, you know, walking on your crying, and you look up, and there's your dad to meet you. And in a little bit, you're like, oh, no, it's dad. <laughs> because what's dad going to do? Here's how dad loves you. All right, come on in, son. We're going to get you taken care of. Let's sit you up on the sink. You sit you up on the sink. All right, we're going to turn on some scalding hot water, as hot as it goes, and we're going to get some soap, some very hot Bernie soap, and we're going to get a rag, and we're going to scrub it out. It'll make you tougher, son. It's going to make a man out of you, right? I mean, that's how Dad does it. And he always, in that moment, says, what did you learn from this? You know, were you going down, too, going down the hill too fast? You should have stopped. You should have been, did you, you know, he always trying to teach you a lesson. So that's how Dad loves us. It's good. We need that, right? A mother loves us differently. Right? A mother says, come here, son. Let me wipe your tears off. Come here, get in my lap. Let me hold you. Instead of instruction, there's compassion. Jesus is challenging us, and when we face all the situations in the world around us, the struggles, the troubles, the trials, the political upheaval, the, the, the rockiness in our marriage, in every relationship we find ourselves in is to live with a mother's love. He goes on to say, in verse number 9, he gets to his big, big point. So those are the five adjectives, and these are the verbs that tell us how to live those out. In other words, he's saying, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know how to do these five adjectives really well, I'm going to tell you what you do. We'll make it real simple for you. Keep it simple, stupid. Verse number 9, resist. Sorry, wrong verse. We'll preach that one another day. Uh, Verse number 9, how do we live this out? What do we do when someone is against us when someone does something that offends us not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult but on the contrary giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing so what is peter saying 
Peter's saying that when someone does something that is offensive to you, if you want to really know how to live out these five adjectives, if you want to live out a life that will give glory to the Father in your relationships, if you want to do this right, here's what you do. When someone does something that is offensive to you, you do not pay them back. When you want to respond to an offense, you stop. When you want to get justice in the moment, you stop. When you want to return evil for the evil that's been done to you, you stop. I think the definition of the word that's most often used in the Bible for forgiveness would be helpful here. The word means to let go or to let it go. Um, some of you probably want, if you have three or four or five years old, want to start singing a song right now, right? And uh, Let it go. No, I'm not going to do it. Um, it means to let it go. And it simply means that when someone does something that's offensive to you, you let them buy with it. You let it go. You don't repay them for what they've done to you. You don't trade the evil they've done for evil you do. You stop. But Peter doesn't stop there, does he? Peter doesn't just say when you want to get even, you stop. He says go further. Go into the place where you not only respond to an offense by stopping, but go further. What does he say to do? He says to bless. The word bless can mean two different things in this context, probably both of them together, and one of them is to be kind, to show kindness. So when someone is most unkind to you, respond to that, to that anger, to that hate, to that attack with kindness. But even more than that, this word bless in this context means to do a favor, to do an act of kindness, approach, pursue with kindness. So when someone does something against you, stop. And you want to respond, stop. And you want to get even, stop. And you want to yell, stop. But don't stop there. In today's text, that's what we're going to dig in on this idea is stop, but don't stop there. So let's play around with that for a few minutes and as, we, uh, as we continue to think through it. So offenses can look a couple of different ways, right? There's active offenses and passive offenses. An active offense, you pull out on the road and somebody, out of anger, pulls in front of you and slams on their brakes. Been there? Right? Very annoying. A passive offense is the person who pulls out in front of you, they don't even know you're there, it's la-la land time, and they're driving 30 in a 45. That's a passive offense, right? We, in those moments, have the opportunity to respond to the offense. And if that is you driving 30 miles per hour in front of me in the 45 miles per hour, do know for certain that that is an offense, in case you were wondering. So either way, whether it's an active offense or a passive offense, when we have the opportunity to respond, to punish, the first thing that Peter's challenging us to do is to stop. To stop the downward spiral of negativity. So I experienced this when I was younger. When I was real young, I think I was about 10 years old. My sister was about 13 years old. Um, I had a bad habit of how I used the toilet. We shared a bathroom. That was, I need to explain this one really quickly before I get, get too far into it. We shared a bathroom, and I would have a tendency to leave the seat either up or unfortunately down. And my sister didn't like it. She was 13 years old. She was three, years, three and a half years older than me. She didn't like it. And she would tell me to not do this, and she would get mad at me, and I would try, not to, try to do better, but over and over and over and over, she would have to find her place in rebuking me. One day, she determined to get me back. She was going to take my toothbrush, 
that was also in a shared bathroom. We had two sinks, you know, shared bathroom deal. And clean out the sink with it. All right? So a fence, I left the seat up, or maybe down, paid back with an offense. I'm going to use your toothbrush to clean out the sink. Now that is rude. I cannot believe she would ever do that. That's just mean. That's evil. But I got her back. So I took her toothbrush. And I thought, the context of this argument is related to the toilet. So I cleaned as a 10-year-old boy the toilet. Sorry for your lunches. Uh, with my sister's toothbrush and put it back. Do you see what we began in that scenario? A back and forth. A negative to a negative. A downward spiral. Now, that's what 10 years old do. That's what 13 year olds do. Do we do the same thing in our marriages? Sometimes. Maybe not with toothbrushes. Do we do the same thing to our roommate, classmate? We do. One of the best ways for us to dig in and understand with this idea of learning to stop the downward spiral of negativity is from the, in the context of marriage. There's a quote uh, that says from uh, Miss Graham, Ruth Bell Graham, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. One of my favorite quotes about marriage. You want to know what the core of a good marriage is? It's not how you manage your money. It's not how good your sex life is. It's how good you are at forgiving each other. When your spouse is something that really takes you off and you want to respond, stop. When you get home and uh, you notice that the grass hasn't been mowed and you can't find the dog in the backyard, it's been so long, and you want to respond, stop. When you uh, see that your husband for the 45th time has not put his clothes from the washer into the dryer and now they're mildewed and you want to respond, stop. That was for you, dear. When you want to respond to the negativity and the offenses in your marriage, stop. In any relationship you, you find yourself in, stop. But don't stop there. We have to exchange the egregious offense with a gracious gift. If we want to stop the downward spiral, we have to replace the egregious offense, not with just stopping but with a gracious gift, with gracious kindness, with a gracious favor. And that will stop the negative downhill spiral. Uh, there's a book called Switch. It's by the Heath Brothers. It's a really great book. It talks about how you lead change in any, any team, community, organization. In it, they tell a story of uh, George and Paula who had been married for eight years and they were being counseled by Michelle Weiner. And in this book, uh, they, what they discover is, or what is told is, is that about uh, two years ago, they started getting counseled by Michelle Weiner. And a lot of, a lot of the... I guess techniques she used in counseling really weren't having a big effect. But one day, a major breakthrough happened. George, when he woke up in the morning, after days and days and years and years of arguing and fighting and bickering, simply chose to kiss his wife on the cheek. She felt better about life. Felt better about their marriage. So she... Did something she hadn't done in a long time, and she brewed a cup of coffee. They used to love to sit around and have conversations around coffee, but it had been years. George smelled a cup of coffee, came downstairs, got a cup, and joined her in a real conversation for the first time in a long time. 
Listen to how the Heath brothers describe the, the rest of it. Both of them said the morning made them feel more relaxed and lighthearted. Paula reported that her co-workers noticed the difference in her attitude that day. Even George and Paula's kids seemed affected by the halo of good feelings. They were more relaxed that evening, less argumentative. George's kiss launched a positive spiral. Why did such a little thing matter so much? Because it generated hope that change was possible. When we're approached with offense, whether it's big or small, we want to respond to that offense with some sort of punishment, right? Now, in different marriages, that punishment looks a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's, it's, it's something that's absolutely immorally wrong, right? It's verbal, it's anger, it's attack. But sometimes it's more subtle than that. It's the silent treatment. It's the, I'm not going to clean that thing that you asked me to clean. We find ourselves choosing in the moment of offense whether we will punish or not, and too often we choose to punish, and we create a negative spiral. Instead of saying, instead of punishing, I'm going to stop. When, um, when I was younger, we would throw baseball sometimes. Just uh, friends of mine, we throw baseball. So we throw, I know we're not good at it, but sometimes I'd actually be able to throw it where they could catch it. But you throw baseball back and forth. Well, if you ever watch 10, 15-year-old boys throw baseball, you'll notice something. Eventually, one of them is going to throw the baseball just a little bit too hard. And then the other guy is going to catch the baseball and go, huh, oh, you threw that pretty hard. Let me, let me show you what I got. And he's going to throw it just a little bit harder. And it's going to hit that glove. And the other guy's going to throw it back a little bit harder. And then the other guy's going to throw it back a little bit harder until eventually you get to the point to where one person you would think is trying to take off the hand of the other kid with the baseball. The same thing happens in our relationships and wherever we find ourselves and whatever relational, relational context we are in, when we respond to offense with another offense, the negative spiral moves downhill. What this story illustrates and what Peter is challenging us to do is stop the negative spiral and you stop it by deciding you're not going to move forward towards punishment of the offense. When you are offended, no matter how you want to punish. And remember this, remember how there were different, different offenses, there were active offenses and passive offenses, there's big offenses and small offenses. There are big punishments and small punishments, right? That silent treatment, that leaning over and, and looking away and I'm just not going to talk to you, is a punishment for sin. That I'm not going to hold the door for you today, dear, because I'm kind of ticked off at you, is a punishment for sin. I'm not going to open your car door for you today because I didn't like how you said that one thing to me, is a punishment for sin. And what Peter is telling us is no matter how we are choosing to punish someone for the offense, actively or passively, we must choose if we are to live out the gospel in our relationships. When we are tempted to respond, to rebuke, to repay, we are to stop but not stop there. Move on into doing kindness. So can you imagine this? The next time your spouse does something that absolutely drives you crazy, and I don't know what, what it is in your world. Maybe they played the Xbox too long. Maybe they watched football too long. Maybe they were on Netflix all day. Whatever it is. And you're just annoyed by it. You're offended by it. Not only stop when you want to repay, but replace that with an act of kindness an act of grace do them a favor rub their feet wash their dishes take them take them to their favorite restaurant replace the negative not just with nothing but with kindness one of the things that is interesting about this text if you look at it pretty carefully the wind is blowing up here so i have to constantly find where i'm at sorry about that 
Verse number 9, it says this, and I want you to look at it again. It says, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. He uses this idea of reviling for reviling in 1 Peter to connect us back to a different text. And I want to show it to you. If you have your Bible open, we'll have it on the screen for you, but if you have your Bible open, turn over to chapter 2, verse 21. And it says this. Notice, look at the screen for a second. Notice right in the middle, it's exactly, almost a direct quote of what Peter tells us to do. Jesus did. When he was reviled, he he did not revile in return. Look at the text. Verse number 8. Now finally... All of you should be like-minded. Oops, sorry. Where am I at? For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no no deceit was found in his mouth. When reviled, he did not reviled. When suffering, he did not threaten, but committed himself or entrusted himself, the ESV says, to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sorrow, our sins, in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounding, we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of his souls. So what Peter tells us to do is, to not to stop, but don't stop there. And he tells us that Jesus is our example. And you might ask the question, how in the world am I ever going to do that? If I let him by with that thing he does, if I let her by with that thing he does, she does, then they're never going to learn. This text teaches us a little bit of how we're able to forgive anyone no matter what they do and even give them grace. Notice the next little phrase. But what did Jesus do? He continued entrusting him, himself to him who judges justly. The reason Jesus was able to be reviled but not revile in return, the reason he was able to respond to injustice with grace and kindness is because he trusted God to take care of the whole scenario. He believed that God was in control. This is very helpful if you are in the place in life where you think, I've got to say something. If I don't say something, they won't change. Can I give you a little bit of hope today? It's going to start negative, but it's going to get positive. You can't change them anyway. Only God can change someone's heart. You can't change your spouse's heart. You can't change your friend's heart. You can't change your your dad's heart. You can't change your mom's heart, your sister, your brother. You can't change them. Real life change, the Bible teaches us, is not the result of fear or discipline or someone holding holding a bat over your head or someone pounding you and nagging you over and over. Real change never happens that way. Real change has to happen in the heart. And who is the only one who can change the heart? You see, here's what happens. When we take the change mechanism into our hands, we're taking it out of the hands of God. Instead of the Holy Spirit being free and entrusted to transform someone's heart, when we choose to not forgive, when we choose to repay, when we choose to try to drive someone towards the frustrating kind of life change that we have a tendency to lead someone towards, we are pulling that out of God's hands. Now, we can't really pull out God's hands, right? He's sovereign. He's big, too big for us to do that. But instead of us responding with trust in his grace and trust in his control and his power, we're putting it in our own hands. This text teaches us how Jesus does so. How Jesus was able to revile. It's because he trusted God. Not only that, it reminds us of this. It reminds us of what kind of grace Jesus gave us. Because it points us to the cross. When Jesus looked down from heaven at you, 
or for me. He looked at us and he saw us in rebellion against him. He saw that we hated him, that we acted against him constantly, or even worse, we completely ignored him and act like he wasn't real or he wasn't there, he wasn't Lord. If you think that's not, a big, not that big of a deal, think about the last time someone treated you that way. Think about the last time you were in a home and someone acted like you weren't there, or in a car and someone acted like you weren't there. We are in rebellion against Jesus. You and I were born into rebellion against Jesus. He looks at those offenses. He looks at us deserving that guilty judgment, that condemnation. At the end of a short life, an unending verdict for an unending, unending weakness, an unending sin. And he says, stop. He looks at your sin. He looks at the judgment that you deserve. He says, stop. I will stand in their place. I will suffer for them. I will receive the just penalty for their sin. Reminds me of a quote of Tim Keller from Tim Keller. The essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. When you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness then is costly. Jesus demonstrated that for us on the cross when He looked at our sin. He took it on Himself and said, Stop. But He didn't stop there. Jesus said, Not only will I take their sin, but I will give them my righteousness. I will give them my position. I will give them my inheritance. I will give them my name. I will give them my glory. I will give them my throne. I will give them my position so that everything God has for me, Jesus says, I want you, Father, to give to them. That is the radical nature of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is how the, the gospel remixes our approach to the Father. I'll close with a story that helps us understand this pretty powerful way. There was a Korean couple, had a son named Ho-Ho, and uh, Ho-Ho had been very successful in college, he graduated with honors, and he was going to med school at Penn. While I was at med school, doing very well, had a very great life in front of him, and went to go mail a letter in a mailbox. Some teenage thugs saw him there, and for the change in his pockets, beat him down and killed him. During the trial, the Korean couple, the parents of Ho-Ho, sat in silence the entire time until the verdict of guilty was read for the teenage boys. After the verdict was read, they approached the judge's stand with his permission. They got on their knees and they began to beg for mercy for those teenage boys. If you will just give them mercy, we will invite them in our home and we'll let them live with us. We'll give them the life that they obviously never had or they wouldn't be in this position. We'll love them with a the love they've never been loved. We'll give them the things they've never been given. We will give them the kindness we have reserved up for our own son. Because we are followers of Jesus. And that's what He's done for us. They knew what it means to respond to an offense by going stop. But not stopping there. Let's pray.